0: Good evening and a very warm welcome um, to the LSE. Uh, my name is Wendy Willems and I teach in the Department of Media and Communications. Um, And I'm very pleased to welcome you to this Africa Talks um, public lecture which is hosted by the LSE African Initiative uh, which brings together um, LSE academics and students with a common interest in the study of Africa. And if any of you are interested in uh, looking further at the stuff we do and the events we host, do have a look at our blog uh, Africa at LSE and also subscribe to the newsletter or follow us on Twitter. Um, so I'm very privileged to introduce the speaker for this evening's lecture, Dr. Sean Jacobs from the New School in New York and also the founder of the popular blog Africa is a Country. I've known Sean for quite a long time, and I was very pleased when he accepted our invitation to speak uh, this evening. I think we met at a conference in, uh, in Zimbabwe, a conference on political culture in Southern Africa in 2001 or 2002, uh, and at the time we were both writing our PhD dissertations, um, uh, at Sean at Bergbeck and myself at SOAS, and Sean was focusing on the role of media in the uh, post apartheid transition in South Africa, while I worked on the role of media in the, the Zimbabwe crisis. And both of us were really keen to situate our cases within a broader global, um, geopolitical, and also post-colonial context. Uh, and I've since that time I've closely followed uh, Sean's work. <laughs> so after he completed his PhD dissertation at back he moved to the US and then had held various uh, positions at NYU, the University of Michigan, and he's now based in a new school for uh, public engagement, where he teaches courses on Africa and South Africa particularly, and also on soccer and politics. and for the record he's an avid Liverpool supporter (laughs) Um, so um, Sean is currently also finalising a book which is entitled Media and Post-Apartheid South Africa Postcolonial Politics in the Age of Globalisation which will be published by Indiana University Press Um, He's also the editor of two books, uh, Tabo's Bakey's World, The Politics and Ideology of the South African President, as well as Shifting Shifting Selves, Post-Apartheid Essays on Mass Media Culture and Identity. And he's the editor of a special issue of, of Popular Communication on Media Culture in Africa. Um, I think what I admire most about Sean's work is his commitment, in Stuart Hall fashion, I would say, to be a public intellectual and to speak truth to power. And as many of you know, of course, he's also the founder of the popular Africa is a Country blog, uh, which he started single-handedly on a different name, I think in 2007, uh, under the name Leo Africanus. And in the beginning, Africa as a country played a really important role in critiquing and questioning Western uh, media representations of Africa, kind of the stereotypical ways in which they were um, describing the continent as a country. But more recently, he also began to offer alternative perspectives on key events such as the death of Nelson Mandela. And now the blog is very much run um, uh, by a team of bloggers, many of whom are also academics, And it has become a really important voice in debates on race, both on the continent and elsewhere, exposing racism in a range of discourses, both in and outside um, the media. So uh, through Africa as a country, I think Sean has not only commented on Africa's shifting digital landscape, but he's also very much contributed and participated in this shift. So therefore, I could not really think of a better speaker to address us on this topic this evening. So before I invite Sean to uh, give his lecture, I'd just like to make a few uh, logistical remarks. So uh, for those who are inclined to tweet, and I suspect there might be quite a few this evening, um, the hashtag for tonight is LSE Africa. Um, Of course, please put your phones on silent so that you don't disrupt the event. Um, Today's event is also uh, being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast in the next few days. Uh, subject to no te- technical difficulties. And the format for tonight is as follows. We'll have Sean speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then we'll have a and a Q&A after that. Um, so may I now invite Sean to deliver his lecture? Uh, and um, please. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm a little tall. Okay, that worked. So... Um, let me just... And I have one other thing I have to figure out. It's the slideshow, right? Like that? Yeah, yep. there we go. Okay. So let me, let me start by thanking Dr. Wendy Willems and the LSE for inviting me to be part of the Africa Talk Series. I hope this evening's proceedings will at least be interesting to you, the audience. And I think Wendy may have set me up for failure <laughs> or you up for disappointment by comparing me to Stuart Hall. <laughs> so I'll start with an anecdote, which I think is always the way to do these things. Okay, wait. So, in late summer 2001, I spent a few weeks teaching in a summer school in the University of Oslo. I had some Norwegian friends I knew from Cape Town where I was born, and lived and worked at the time. But not teaching a collection of foreign students, I'd spend my time hanging with my friends in Grunelukka, a heap gentrified section of the capital that had the reputation for housing the highest density of socialists in the country. We'd sit in parks drinking beers and talking politics. On one of those days, a Norwegian friend, Camilla, introduced me to an acquaintance of hers, Nina, who informed me about a protest that weekend to oppose global debt. The protest would be organised by ATTACK, a social movement founded in the late 1990s and that agitates around the negative effects of globalisation. That year, ATTACK was in the news a lot for his campaign around cancelling the debt of developing countries. Since I had just arrived from South Africa, Nina, who was a tax national leader, asked me to speak at the protest to represent Africa. I can't remember how long it took me to make the decision whether I knew what I was getting myself into or whether I thought I had the mandate to speak for a whole continent, but I agreed to it. At the time, I was working for a DASA, a think tank in South Africa, which could at best be described as a social democratic organization. So hardly a radical group and I can't remember if they had a stance on global debt. But I did identify with the broad left and was familiar with the contours of the debate. Basically, African countries were saddled with debt while African and Caribbean countries, on unfavorable terms that were incurred by dictatorships or inherited from previous regimes. I knew the group of eight countries, a forum of the leading industrial countries, was meeting that week in Genoa, Italy, about this very matter. In any case... I decided I needed to study up on global debt before speaking about it, so I turned to the Internet. I consulted some left-wing and progressive organizations associated with the issue at the time, organizations like Jubilee 2000, and I made some notes. The Saturday morning, we all set off to the protests in downtown Oslo in front of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The turnout was decent. All the speeches were in Norwegian, and at some point, I heard my name from the stage, and I stepped to the mic. So what I did was I repeated some some statistics about how much of every dollar in most African governments' budgets goes to servicing this debt. Then I repeated a line from something, or it could have been my paraphrase of it, that I had seen on one of the sites that I consulted, and this line was, "We don't owe, so we don't pay." Now I've done my fair share of public speaking And I wouldn't class myself as an orator But noting the crowd's positive reaction to that, to that specific line I decided to turn it into a call and response Like sort of half shouting I was like, we don't owe And the crowd was like, so we don't pay So I kind of did this a couple of times Now what happened next Was even more incredible to me at least Right in the front of the stage was a drum circle And before I knew it They were beating out the rhythm to this So we don't owe we don't pay. And soon they were repeating this after every speech. When the rally was over, we headed to a cafe for some beers. Just notice, beer is a motif. And then home to my friend's <laughs> apartment to catch the evening news. Now, this was before you could just Google any news broadcast and then search the, their video database online and sort of like watch the news whenever you wanted. And as we settled in, we saw the newsreader on NRK, which is Norway's biggest television station, introduce the main news item. And guess what? It was about the protest in front of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Then the news cut to scenes of the protest and of me shouting, We don't owe, so we don't pay. And then to the drummers um, putting rhythm to it. Now, it would be easy to read what happened to me in a cynical way, which is, you know, as we often do at the site that I run, which you now know about, called Africa as a Country, um, you know, that this is clueless Europeans mistaking any African for a spokes- as a spokesperson for this subalcan. And, you know, there's some truth to that reading, but in hindsight, I see something else at work also here. Firstly, for me, this is one of the places where I can trace back the origin story of Africa as a Country. But more importantly, I want to flag something else. If you can remember, Part of the story above is about me searching for information about global debt, and many of the sites, while very well known among people working on debt issues, were somewhat marginal at the time. If and when mainstream media covered global debt, they mostly did so as a game of wills among superpowers or international financial institutions. Very little was being reported about the movement opposing the debt or about their arguments. So trolling the web, looking for things to say at the rally, I found valuable work put out by people who, when they put it out on the web, were expressing unpopular ideas or had no idea that someone would see it, where they would found it, or whether they would find it um, useful, but they posted it anyway. So in a way, that approach would later inform how I thought about Africa's country's own mission, that is, to write the contrarian, difficult truth, no matter how many people care at, at that very moment, in the hope that it will fall in the right hands one day. And secondly, my new friend Nina's decision to ask me to speak pointed perhaps to how struggles proceed in random, unanticipated fashion, and how good intentions, coupled with basic political insight and the confidence to try and sometimes fail, but to see what works, can end up in something wonderful and bigger than we can sometimes even imagine. So, let me get to the, to the, away from the anecdotal towards some, some insight. So this presentation is really, a, a, a or this talk, is really a, a series of, obs- of observations. And it comes from two places. First and most obviously, it comes from running Africa as a country, what academics might call practice, a site where along with a group of editors and contributors, as you've heard, um, I actively sought to engage on my own terms with what passes for the global public sphere for the last six years or so. And secondly, it reflects the beginnings of what is becoming, for me, my next research project in which I want to interrogate Africa and Africans' place in what passes for this global public sphere. So in short, my approach is instead of focusing on the normative idea of of the public sphere to try and locate actually existing public spheres or, or a public sphere, especially what is emerging online, and instead of studying discrete public spheres, come up with, you know, hopefully some big arguments. And my research up to now, as you've heard, is focused on the globalization of South African media, and it's while exploring the continental ambitions of South African media firms as part of their projects of nation-building that I sort of came to this work. Through much of, though much of my work is on how politics and popular culture intersect, for today I will focus more explicitly on political with a, with a capital P um, axe. So without spending too much time on terms, what is obvious is that far as the relationship between the idea of a global public sphere and social media are concerned is that the generalizations hide a far more interesting set of observations. Debates and discussions about what passes for a global public sphere often overlook and obscure dynamics of power or take themselves too seriously. What is defined as the global public sphere by most observers and scholars is very much limited to the industrial north, and their public and private broadcasting systems, their online media and Twitter handles, and it happens mostly in English. And I may also add that African elites and publics are as much implicated in these processes. So we can identify a range of conditions when it comes to Africa's participation in the global public sphere in which, one, social media is able to thrive without representing a significant threat to the status quo in sub-Saharan Africa, just as there are, two, a number of scenarios in which media acts represent real opportunities for political action or political change. And just to make sure, in case I get taken for romanticizing the Internet and social media in particular, these media acts are often linked to broader struggles for social justice that predate or happen in sync with online efforts. So let me give, some, let me give these observations. First, I want to give the bad news. Probably the most significant event in the recent and short history of Africa's place in online global politics has to be the Kony 2012 um, campaign. This was the campaign to, quote, make the Ugandan warlord Joseph Kony famous, unquote. Despite criticisms about the 29-minute film around which the campaign pivoted, as well as the organization behind it... (laughs) Let me just say that, you know, as I said, (laughs) let me bring the bad news. Interventions like Invisible Children will at least for a while remain the dominant template for how the global public sphere, specifically its online variant, will still engage with African issues and Africans. For Exhibit A, B, and C, just Google the media campaigns of any major NGO or even some UN agencies like UNICEF. Listen or watch any 24-hour news channel on any major US or even here in the UK debating humanitarianism, or read this series of soft-pedal interviews with Invisible Children's founder, Jason Russell, even after the organization publicly imploded in publications like The Guardian, for example, or BuzzFeed. One of the key responses of Coney 2012 is my Africa as a Country colleague, Elliot Ross, reminded me, was that some Western media, especially media that pay little attention to Africa or African issues, seemed astonished by the sudden awareness that if you report on something happening in Uganda or name your country, without bothering to talk to any people from said country, you would likely come up with something like Kony 2012. They anxiously asked around for as many Africans as they could find to provide some kind of unchallengeable African truth. You Nigerian? You from Sierra Leone? Oh well, close enough you'll do. Now tell us what to believe and please try to be polite and not say anything horrible about racism especially if it might be ours. <laughs> now, of course, you know, Africans did push back and there, there are a number of articles that you can read. Um, for example, the, the writer Teju Cole had a piece, I think it was called The White Savior Industrial Complex. You know, there's a ton of those. Um, but just to continue on this point of looking for like an, an African voice, but it's not clear how being authentically African makes someone a useful purveyor of opinion on the issue. Even Invisible Children has African voices on its staff. In fact, this was part of Invisible Children's defence when they responded to criticisms. And surprise, surprise, Africans can also draw uninformed or purely self-interested conclusions about what's going on in the continent or in their countries, and can come to wrong conclusions. In fact, nationally defined African public spheres are just as insular and self-centered as their Western counterparts. So it is unclear if the authenticity of the African engaged in or critiquing any given African situation is a solution per se. The takeaway from CONI 2012, though, is that it will continue to be significant because it demonstrates Western media and Western public's appetite for storytelling, narratives, and typically white, bridge characters. Complexity isn't sexy, and Coney 2012 stands as a towering example of the continuing desire to make Africa simple, that is, to make Africa a country. That the West's worldview is so, is so self-centered, and that that self-importance, which stems from a long-standing global hegemony, leads to condescending attitudes towards non-Western contexts, is not surprising, and of course, you know, it's also not very interesting. What is more interesting, I think, is how African bloggers, activists, artists, and crucially, governments, have taken control of their representations and engaged in what passes for a global public sphere. Like everywhere else, history and a host of contextual factors, legacies of colonialism, migration, or different patterns of engaging with the global, inform the, the quality of this engagement, and the result is equally complicated. So, Kony 2012 and projects like it aside, um, a number of actors and actions present interesting cases for how Africans interact with social media, and the first have to do with political and policy elites. Now, though in general, African heads of state back away from social media, or at best get staff to tweet or post on Facebook on their behalf, there are some interesting um, examples we can we can turn to. Take the Nigeria's current president, Goodluck Jonathan who was an eager adopter of social media. Most striking, Jonathan launched his presidential run on Facebook in 2011. However, Jonathan has since become gun-shy. He does not have a Twitter account, the last time I checked, and is not active on Facebook anymore, and I think there might be a reason. His critics also resorted to using social media, so much so that by January 2012, he had set a world record and again, whatever, the, I don't say, somebody says he yeah, has set a world record, as the most cursed president on Facebook, <laughs> and more recently has been the subject of biting memes online. So the, this, this one called the, the G-E-J pose is just one. So just if you're wondering um, what that's about. In this case, Nigerians post selfies online where they rip off this awkward pose that Jonathan struck when visiting victims of Boko Haram's terror. As a result, Jonathan has withdrawn, as I said, from social media Now some of these, some of, actually, when I say Jonathan personally He has people doing, um, people who, who look and care about Nigeria Will recognize some of the people, you know, uh, Femi um, it Femi Foade, I think is his name, who is like a Who acts as a sort of um, channel of Jonathan's arguments and comments um, But basically what happens in, in these uh, pictures is that People mock the the, the, the sort of deeply concerned, chin-stroking pose, which Jonathan adopted every time he was photographed um, while he was visiting people after a bombing in April uh, uh, 2014. Now, a number of other heads of states have been less shy about their social media use. Jacob Zuma of South Africa, Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya, and Yoweri uh, Museveni of Uganda can be counted among these Trolling through their Twitter timelines of announcements and homilies, one gets the impression that staff tweet or post on Facebook on their behalf. Zoomer, for example, last tweeted on February 12th, and before that, in October last year. So many of these people, they have Twitter accounts with over 300,000 followers, but they rarely tweet. Then, as I said, there are some interesting exceptions. There's Rwanda's longtime president, Paul Kagame who for a while best illustrated, from my perspective, the potential and the paradox of social media for African politics and political leaders, given the way that that African politics is sort of set up and the way that it works. Kagame has been dubbed the, quote, digital president by the International Telecommunications Union's broadband commission for his efforts to get Rwandans wired. More interesting has been his actions on Twitter. Kagame has more than 907... Twitter followers. This is when I last checked um, earlier today. This is dramatically up from 269,000 uh, at the same time last year. This gives him the most Twitter followers of any African head of state and compares favorably with his Euro-American counterparts. Four things about Kagami's Twitter habits that makes him stand out not just among African heads of state, but also among heads of state anywhere in the world. One, is that he tweets himself from his own Twitter account at Paul Kagame, which is a separate Twitter account from the official account of the office of the president. Two are his frequency of tweets and the style and tone of these tweets. Exclamation marks, abbreviation, and numbers impersonating words, which resembles language, more suiting for texting among teens, right? I mean, if you look at it, he basically has the language of sort of WhatsApp, which is a sort of... Uh, thing that was very popular in, in uh, southern Africa. He has that down, he speaks in that language. Three is the candor of, of his tweets. Finally, Kagami's Twitter use is an interesting case study because in the process he manages to represent an ideal path for political engagement in the digital age, but also to simultaneously um, discredit itself, himself. That he tweets himself has a lot to do with it. So I'm just going to go over two quick, two quick examples of, of uh, How his tweeting is uh, interesting And his engagement on uh, social media So in the first instance in uh, May 2011 Kagame gave an interview to the Financial Times As part of that paper's weekend edition They have this thing called Lunch With you You know, Lunch With Somebody Where he responded to criticisms About alleged human rights abuses in Rwanda And said, quote I don't think anybody out there in the media UN... Human rights organizations has any moral right whatsoever to level any accusations against me or against Rwanda, because when it comes to the problems facing Rwanda and the Congo, they were all useless. I mean, he's referring to, of course, um, April 1994. As the interviewer William Wallace, the African editor at the FT, noted at the time, "Quote Kagami has developed an acute sensitivity to Western mendacity and double standards." Unquote. So basically, he counters criticism of his rule by calling out the hypocrisy and doublespeak of Western governments um, and media elites. Now, the interview with the FT would have just been read by the FT's readership. You know, I don't know if you know, they have like a uh, what do you call that? Well, you need to pay. to have a paywall, <laughs> um, and that's where it would have ended. But it, it is what happened on Twitter afterwards that is really interesting. It started when Ian Burrell, a British journalist and former speechwriter to David Cameron, described Kagami as, quote, despotic and deluded, unquote, for believing for believing that he should not be criticized. Nobody expected what happened next. Kagami became annoyed with Burrell's tweet, and then in a series of tweets, the two men went at, went at each other, going back and forth, with neither budging from their original positions. At some point, others, you know, a lot of other people joining, including Rwanda's foreign minister. <laughs> At the end of the spat, which lasted a while, most observers considered the exchange unique. They deemed it the first time that a head of state had directly engaged with a journalist on Twitter. Some, however, complained that Kagami's behavior was unbecoming of, of somebody who runs a government. Burrell, to his credit, disagreed. He found it admirable to see a leader, quote, a leader engaging so personally, with new means of communication, unquote. And he concluded, like many politicians, he ducked issues and answered questions with another questions, but eventually, after more than a dozen tweets, he half answered my central point, saying that while some in the UN media and human rights groups like to criticize, they were not without flaws themselves, unquote. But, added Burrell, it was telling that there was no one Kagami thought worth following on Twitter at the time, so at that time Kagami had like zero People that he was following, <laughs> so Burrell pointed out it is a same that so few of and, and he pointed out that it's the same that so few of Kagami's own people were able to see such revelatory self-exposure. For the irony of, his, of this exchange is that while Kagami is happy to engage with a foreign critic like me on Twitter, he refuses to permit such dissent from journalists and political rivals in his own country. Unquote. Now, of course, some Rwandan supporters or you know representatives of, of, of his government. Disagree because um, there were some discussion inside Rwanda, especially by columnists in a, in a local Kigali paper, New Times, that is deemed to be very close to the government. Um, just as a little quick side point, earlier this week I checked whether Kagami has started following anyone on Twitter <laughs> since that 2011 incident, and in fact, yes, he does. He follows about 37 people in total, but they are mostly American political, academic NGO and technology elites, you know, people like Bill Gates, Michael Bloomberg, Jeffrey Sachs, but he also interestingly <laughs> follows Chelsea Clinton, <laughs> a, a rabbi who was very close to him, a uh, small teeth um, and an ev- evangelical pastor of a mega church in California. On the continent, he follows the presidents of Uganda, South Africa, and Kenya, and then he follows, like, four accounts of people who are who you can identify explicitly um, um, as Rwandan, and these are mostly people that are Either his family members, or people, or the office of his of his um, of his government. Um, but this all makes sense. As a blogger, Kigali Wire, who later became the Reuters correspondent for Rwanda, and um, observed at the time Rwanda's so, uh, Rwanda's the Rwandan government's social media strategy, um, which all government ministers are encouraged to sign up for, are geared towards outside um, audiences. So let me just quickly tell you about the second incident. A second incident in March 2014, because the first one is sort of mixed, you know, you have this kind of, it's a, there's a stalemate between sort of Kagami, um, Kagami and his Western critics. In the second one, it doesn't reflect so well on Kagami and the Rwandan government's online strategy. Then an account going by the handle at Richard Goldstone, without the E at the end, it's a play on the South African judge's name, and known for its trolling and spirited defense of Rwanda's government against foreign critics and perceived enemies, was traced to Kagami's office. Basically, Sonia Rolly, a journalist with the French broadcaster RFE, who was writing a story about Rwandan political dissidents, was trolled by this account. An American journalist then requested the Richard Goldstone account to refrain from making misogynistic comments against Rolly. The journalist, to his surprise, then received a reply from Kagami's personal account. As Twitter heated up over the controversy, Kagame's office denied it, that it was him who wrote the tweet, but the account was soon deleted and a junior employee was blamed for the tweets um, and, quote, reprimanded. You can Google this and read this yourself. While the actions of Kagame may be interesting for how African governments engage in political discourse online, more interesting for me are the implications of a number of other developments, and I'll talk about them now. First up is Sahara Reporters. If you haven't heard of them yet, just Google them. To understand the importance of Sahara Reporters, first we need to talk about Occupy Nigeria, hashtag Occupy Nigeria. The hashtag Occupy Nigeria refers to a series of protests that brought that country to a standstill for the first two weeks of January 2012 following an announcement by President Jonathan, as you would say him again, that his government would scrap a fuel subsidy. As the BBC observed at the time, because of widespread corruption and ineffective government, many Nigerians felt the fuel subsidy was the only government service that they saw benefit, that they saw an actual benefit from. It was therefore no surprise when hundreds of thousands of Nigerians streamed onto the street to join marches and rallies. The national strike was only suspended after the government broke a deal with trade unions and partly restored the subsidy. By most estimates, Occupy Nigeria was the largest and most sustained short-term protest movement in any sub-Saharan African country in a long while, and it pointed to interesting possibilities for the relationship between social media and political mobilization. Some of the crucial support for Occupy Nigeria came from media activists online, equally from within Nigeria and within its diaspora. Two websites stood out for doing some of this work. The first one was called Chop Kasava. Um, based in Nigeria, and which produce short video documentaries, and I would encourage you to just Google them, they on Vimeo. And secondly, Sahara Reporters, which produces, a news, which produces news and opinion, as well as media-like videos. Of these two, it is Sahara Reporters, established in 2000, 2006, that is the most interesting, the more interesting, and may have the larger impact. Sahara Reporters has become a media force inside Nigeria for a number of reasons. First, is the nature of the stories it reports and how it sources information from users. Eyewitness accounts, raw information about sensitive issues, that the press in Nigeria is too afraid to publish or report. This is is the words of a a, a media researcher with the Committee um, for the Protection of Journalists. Second is the kinds of attention Nigerian political leaders and elites give Sahara reporters. Sahara Reporters regularly shapes the news agenda within Nigeria, with President Goodluck Jonathan's office releasing media statements directly addressed to the site. They've also been the subject of regular legal suits by Nigerian politicians, none of which has resulted in any damage for Sahara Reporters. Finally, and most importantly, Sahara Reporters exists and can do what it's doing because it exists physically outside Nigeria. The website's main offices are in a nondescript office block on a busy midtown Manhattan, New York, New York City street. That location has the effect of placing Sahara reporters beyond the reach of the politicians and corporations that the site often reports on. So, what makes Sahara reporters, their Sahara reporters, reporting global? is not just the fact that it's transnational, but also the flow and the counterflow of information between New York City, Lagos, and elsewhere in Nigeria, as well as in Europe. One could only imagine the impact of similar projects like Sahara Reporters were such projects replicated on this scale and have the same kinds of impacts elsewhere on the continent, whether in a country context or regionally. Now, some concerns have been raised about the sensationalism in Sahara Reporters' style of reporting and their writing. However, the conspiratorial and mocking tone of Sahara reporters' coverage should not be surprising. The sensationalism or the partiality to sensational stories is simply symptoms of a current Nigerian reality. People know that they are getting screwed by the political system and that there is a real beyond what is visible, dominant, or apparent in mainstream Nigerian media, so therefore they consult Sahara reporters. So then, let me talk about somebody else then. There's the Nigerian writer, sorry, my, my sec, second example. He's the Kenyan writer, sorry, um, Binyavanga Wainana. Now, Binyavanga is no stranger for his output or to this audience. I understand he spoke last year, right? In uh, 2005, he published the now legendary essay in Granta, How to Write About Africa, which lampooned Euro-American journalists and writers who get it wrong. And in 2011, he brought out a memoir, One Day I Will Write About This Place, which was critically acclaimed. He's now seen as a representative of a new generation of African intellectuals and writers using their celebrity and notoriety to counter one-dimensional or flatten-out narratives of the continent, things like, you know, represented by the likes of uh, Kony 2012. Recently, Binyavanga came out online, as a, he came out online as a gay man, And this represents an interesting moment for African digital cultures. The example that I'm going to give is somewhat self-indulgent. So let me get to that. Here we go. The story revolves revolves around a series of events on Binyavanga's 43rd birthday on Saturday, January 18, 2014. That day, he published um, an online essay, quote, I'm a homosexual mum." unquote. Calling it the lost chapter of his 2011 memoir, I'm a Homosexual Mum," was written in the form of a letter to his mother and cuts back and forth between different ages as well as real and imagined memories. As we learn from the piece, he never actually told his late mother, who passed away a few years ago, that he was gay. Over the next day or so, Wainana and his team also put out a series of videos online in which he expanded on the reasons for coming out as well as opined on a range of other topics. Basically, it amounted to like a video manifesto. The videos had traction, but it was the essay that became viral. It got reported by most mainstream Western media and also in African media, both print, TV, and online, especially in his native Kenya, where Binyavanga um, resurfaced on chat shows. When he wrote this thing, he actually sort of like, he went off the Internet for like at least two days, and then the next week he... he, um, Um, re-emerged on Twitter and Facebook and on various websites. Now, the attention to this essay did not surprise anyone. The publication of I Am a Homosexual Mom coincided with a fierce debate and a stifling legal environment for gay people in a number of African countries. There are 35 countries in Africa that have anti-homosexuality laws. Specifically, Binyavanga timed this essay to coincide with, the gar- uh, with, as the Guardian reported at the time, a moment when, he, when his country, Kenya, is ratcheting up its official and, coll- and colloquial homophobic rhetoric, when its neighbour, Uganda, his mother's home nation, has had before its parliament a bill introducing the death penalty for some homosexual acts and where a leading gay rights campaigner was not long ago murdered. And finally, at a time when Nigeria, a country where Nana is in the habit of visiting several times a year, has criminalized any same-sex relationships or its promotion, apparently giving official sanctions to the beatings, whoopings, and stonings of gay men and lesbian women in the, in the north of the country, and imposing mandatory 10-year jail terms elsewhere. Wainana's lost chapter, the Guardian reported, was a pointed and deliberately provocative act. But what interests me here is how I'm a Homosexual Mom entered our media worlds. It was Here's what I think is interesting, well, apart from all those other things, is that it was first posted on two small African websites before it was picked up and reported by mainstream media. Those sites were the Cape, Town, Cape Town-based arts and cultural magazine, Chimorenga Chronic, which is named for the Zimbabwean liberation struggle, and, wait for it, Africa is a country. <laughs> now, this may have surprised many, and of course for me it was satisfying, satisfying to find major media referencing Africa as a country as the primary source for the essay in subsequent coverage. But there was an important rationale behind the decision, as Binyavanga would explain in an interview on American Public Radio a few days later, and I quote from his interview. He said, I am a writer, and I am an imaginative person, and I think I kind of had a feeling, having been in the media before, that the media kind of deals in sort of, you know, nice things, but bullet points. Quote, in the heart of gay, homophobia, darkness in Africa, Binyavanga writes, Binyavanga explains how homophobia in Africa works. So it was very important to me that first, I didn't want the story published in the New Yorker or in some magazine abroad or anything. I wanted to put it out for people to share. I wanted to generate a conversation among Africans, just talk around the issues in a certain way. So what we have here is Binyavanga wanting us to imagine for a moment that if sites like Africa as a country and Chimurenga Chronic didn't exist, we would have had to go to the New Yorker, and the subsequent debates and the framing would have been, as he says, in the heart of gay homophobic darkness in Africa. Secondly, had he made the announcement in a Western Mainstream media outlet, the way it would have Played out is that opponents of gay rights On the continent would have seen him In a Western media outlet and concluded Homosexuality is a Western Thing and they want to impose it on us So, you know, Western sponsored And therefore e- easily uh, Dismissed Now, some may argue These examples that I gave you Or what they represent, that there's, there's nothing New in it, you know, it kind of it's, it's just like a Sort of things that were cyclical, these things may have happened before, for example, kagami's actions, those actions where he sort of point out the contradictions of the West and critiques them, kind of resembles you know the sort of things that uh, um, Ghana's president Kwame Nkrumah did in assailing the West you know these sort of Versions of Kasankara, the aspects of that. Again, I'm not, we can debate um, the differences among these leaders, but that sort of central critique of the West has come from a number of African leaders. Or Chinawa Chebe's 1977, takedown of Heart, the Heart of Darkness, reminds you of Pinyavanga's many interventions. Um, and all that dissident radio broadcasting, or those TV shows like South Africa Now, which was a key part of the resistance against apartheid in South Africa, broadcast from 1980s New York City, gets updated as Sahara Reporters. But there's something different about today's actions, and I mean I don't have to like you know convince you of that. Which is there's clearly more of it. It's harder to monopolise, and especially regular people have access to it. So the result is that there are online spaces where Africa's present and future gets worked out in very contradictory, complementary ways. This is why I gave you, you know, not just the same kind of example, which is sort of straightforward, but the sort of things that we generally just can agree with. So it comes out in contradictory, complicated, messy terms. And that's also, I think, where Africa's a country kind of fits in. We don't call our blog as a country for nothing. I mean, there's, of course, historical reasons behind it basically, one, to destabilize the existing narrative of the continent and its people, and two, to capture how Africans think about their continent in dynamic relations to one another and to globalization. Secondly, the bulk of those mentions. so apart from the fact that people might say, oh, it's the same thing, it's also true that the bulk of the people that I, the examples that I've mentioned to you, engage in elite politics. Paul Kagame's Twitter account for a long time was about his perceived Western enemies with their sureties. Pinyavanga, while he rejects the Afropolitan label and somewhat Bridges the divide between mass and elite Audiences, you know And specifically I think Kenyan audiences And his followers and admirers in the West Has emerged as a de facto Spokesperson for the grievances of this New wave of mobile, highly Educated African migrants As for the work of Sahara reporters It's organized around familiar ideas About the press and press freedom Corruption and good governance So the kind of thing that, you know Western funders are interested in. This doesn't discredit the work of Sahara Reporters, but I'm just saying it sort of fits in what already sort of uh, discourses that circulate. But what about those Africans outside how we typically conceived of power or outside action? And here I just want to quickly mention two examples. First, we can't underestimate the extent to which irreverent youth culture... I knew this one would be controversial. (laughs) Both by ordinary Africans on the continent and in the diaspora, contribute to online political culture with real effects and create a certain kind of African modernity. Also kind of, you know, destabilizes things a little bit. Think of the hashtag that I showed you earlier, which is a little bit more humorous, the GEJ post. And recently, the fall by Zimbabwe's president, Robert Mugabe, which inspired countless memes, both humorous and politically biting like this one. There's others where, for example, he rides a wave, he surfs. I would just tell you, just go to Twitter and type in um, Mugabe Sells. He also ends up swinging on the ball that my Cyrus used in her <laughs> video. Now, apart from that one, I think there are also, this, my second example, just quickly, is I also think we need to pay attention to one other development. So first there's this kind of youthful, irreverent one like this one, but then there's also a second one that I think is is, is, is uh, very interesting. And here I think we need to pay attention to evangelical Christianity exported from parts of West Africa and, especially, and increasingly smaller countries like Zimbabwe or Zambia that, that envelops its leaders like the Nigerian superpastor T.B. Joshua Whose political power seldom gets written about in mainstream Western press, um, despite his proximity to, to, to power, and whose YouTube hits numbers in the millions, or his followers who spread their brand of African evangelical Christianity by building churches in soft fronts around major Western and now East Asian cities, and also are very, you know, all over the African continent. Just, just as a quick, like, uh, description... Many African leaders travel up to, to uh, T. V. Joshua's uh, temple. You have, like, John Atta Mills, before he died, went to Nigeria. Um, there's, there were rumors that Morgan Changarai, or well, he was the prime minister, that he went to see him. Joyce Banda, I mean, you can just Google it. Many of, many, many... So this is somebody who's not talked about maybe in the way that we talk about Paul Kagame, or that we may think about a sort of somebody like uh, Binyavanga, but has... Even way more political power, way more influence online, and we're not talking about this this, this kind of this person. Now, those followers vigorously defend these the followers of, of uh, preachers like T. B. Joshua defend Joshua and his synagogue, Church of All Nations um, below YouTube videos and comments on websites. It is they who increasingly come to determine the outlines of how Africa enters and operates in the global public sphere and who have thus far failed that, and who we have thus far failed to make sense of and engage with properly. So in conclusion it's important to remember that the public sphere any public sphere is a site of considerable contestation. The American political scientist Nancy Fraser in her now well-worn critique of the German sociologist and philosopher Jürgen Habermas' now a very old idea of the public sphere, suggested that one should look for actually existing public spheres rather than impose normative ones. So while social media in some instances may replicate and reinforce the dominant racist, sexist, or even as some people might say capitalist power that we are familiar with and that we experience unevenly, it sometimes does not. And it would appear that social media is also a form that can be given content as the cases of Occupy Nigeria, Sahara Reporters, Binyavanga and even Paul Kagami or TB Joshua would suggest. And I think what I'll do is I'll end there. Thank yeah. you.
2: Thank you very
3: much.
0: Um, thank you very much, Sean, for a, a really provocative lecture, which I'm sure will trigger um, many questions. So I would now like to open the floor uh, to questions and please when you uh, make your question keep it as short as possible and also um, uh, please also tell us who you are. So who would like to go first? And there are roving mics in the audience so please wait for the mic to arrive. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a question there. I'm um, Banaji,
3: Media Communication and Development. Um, I'm going to start with a really silly question um, because that was a wonderful talk and I enjoyed everything about it. But if there had been any women up there, who would they have been? Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> can would take more sure. while I think about this?
0: Um, well, I think we can... You can take...
1: <laughs> um, I mean, y- yes, like, the, the, the quick answer is it's a very male-dominated public sphere. This is, very, um, this is very obvious. I mean, of course, you have uh, somebody like Binia who attempts to undermine that kind of, you know, male-centeredness uh, of that public sphere. I mean, you know what? Actually, I got it. Linda Ikeji. I know there might be people here who would be like, oh, who the hell is Linda Ikeji? Well, who's Linda Ikeji? Linda Ikeji runs pr- probably, I think in Nigeria, a, uh, if you have you know, in every country, if you use these uh, apps that can tell you where the top sites and usually in, in every country it's Google, Facebook, you know, YouTube. I think she's about like number eight or nine in Nigeria. And I swear that there are people reading Linda Ikeji, but they're going to pretend that they don't. But well, what's Linda Ikeji? It's a, it's a gossip Niger, a Nigerian gossip site, cuts and paste, doesn't an attribute, but somehow has become really important in like the, this sort of online public sphere about how ideas now. Um, circulate about Nigerians, how Nigerians think about politics. The most important, with the election coming up, all the major political parties run ads. Well, it's called Sponsored Copy on Linda Ekeji. The you know the PDP, the, what's the other party called? The APC. Yeah, they're all running. They would love, they send their press statements to her. She publishes them verbatim. So there is, you know, I think Linda Ekeji is probably the one person that I think, I think people dismiss her, but there's a lot more um, to what that site does. I would I would say Linda Ekeji definitely, yeah. More questions, any more
0: questions? A question
4: there, Winston. Uh, <coughs> Sean, thank you very much uh, for the presentation. My name is Winston Mano. I am from the University of Westminster. Um, I, I, I I'm also Zimbabwean, <laughs> but my question should uh, thank you for setting up you know Africa as a country and uh, it 's an important platform. My question is about uh, something you talked about in your presentation. Uh, you were talking about how the discourse, if you allow me to use that word, i know it's it 's banned in some places, but <laughs> but what goes on on uh, Africa as a country is also sometimes also discussed uh, in other media, and uh, you seem to like that. you underlined you know how, for example, there was that interface. Um, my question is about you know um this website you set it up i I would like to believe because the issue of representations matter uh, you were countering in a way the stereotypes and you know how Africa is sort of uh, presented in in a in a very you know negative light uh, with your website have you managed uh, in a way to achieve uh, that objective or what we are seeing is actually perpetuation. Are you being taken seriously? Are you, are you having any impact out there? Uh, thank you.
0: Okay, thanks Winston. I think there was another question over there. Am I right? Yes. yes. yeah. <laughs> Let's also take your question.
2: Um, My name is Jennifer and I'm a PhD student at Goldsmiths College and I wanted to ask you, because you shortly mentioned that the diaspora was um, very involved in the Occupy Nigeria movement, so I wanted just to ask how you see the role of the diaspora in the digital media scapes nowadays. Thanks.
0: Great, thank you. And um, there's another question, Mary. Yeah. Oh, could you please wait for the yeah the mic? Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mary Myers. I'm an independent consultant on development communications in Africa. Um, my question is simply about censorship, and whether you could just tell us a little bit about uh, to what extent these bloggers and online presences that you're talking about are subject to censorship in any way. Okay, great. Uh, Sean, would you like to respond to these for
1: now? Um, yeah, let me let me let me deal with Winston's <laughs> hi Winston with Winston's question. <laughs> so. I think well there's two ways to, are we getting are we being taken serious or uh, is that what we wanted? So and maybe I'll preface it by also saying I hope that there's a point in which the Africa's country is not needed anymore. I mean I've watched how when I first started the idea was to, you know, point to these these very vegan trixalized superficial coverage, like calling it out. There was a point where that got got old because uh, Main, the mainstream, and again, I'm not here to replace journalists. You know, or, I mean, I want to, there should be a thousand. What's a thousand flowers Flower blooming? <laughs> in, that may, the mainstream should be better equipped to do their job. Um, you know, and then you have the new. There's all kinds of new professionals that are emerging that are kind of doing the work of all, in particularly in the U.S. Vice, Buzzfeed, and some people might not be aware. Vice also does actual news. Um, uh, you know, So, so I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to replace journalists. I don't want to replace them. So initially I was all about, let me point out these glaring mistakes that they're doing. At some point, I, okay, there was enough other people doing that job. So then I moved on to, well, why don't I re- try to introduce new voices, like people who either write from the continent, Africans, or in the diaspora. Um, this is not just for the sake of being African, but, I mean, of course, I have a particular kind of political... Um, it's a political project. I have my own political views, I, I, so that's what I'm pushing. Um, and I'm hoping that at some point there's no, there's no, there's no need for it anymore. There's no need for African countries. Um, and there, in a way, that's already happening. You have, if there is a, whether it's something happening on the continent, or whether it's something happening here. Uh, Ordinary people, and again, uh, I, I'm 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 making qualifications, you know, for class, for access. Um, you know, you can take the incident in Nigeria with my auger at the top. I don't know if you remember this, where a Nigerian um, military officer was on television on morning television in Nigeria, and he gets asked, where do people, where can people complain about something? And he said something like www.npc. You know, that's all. He didn't say that .org or something or three W's. And it was on TV And within minutes or hours People had cut it into uh, Remixes Where they were uh, DJs had made, you know, my at the top My at the top People were twerking to it I mean, it, it got, you know So there is, there is there's, there's, others, there's already stuff happening That you don't need some long article On Africa as a country That, that is serious And speaks with a, you know the whole history of academic knowledge, and so so, I'm I'm. It's been interesting watching the, the change, and I'm kind of constantly like, what's what's my place? Do they need me anymore? You know, on the on the question of so, are we taken serious? I think yes. I, I think I think there is there is when something happens, there is there are you know not just so Africa as a country, but there are a number of websites like these where people say, I wonder what they're thinking. And I remember when Coney 2012 happened. There was so much debate out there, and then I saw on our Facebook page, and on Twitter, people were saying, I wonder what Africa's country is thinking. I mean, that's specific to us. So then we were like, okay, we better, we we waited we like two or three days, and then we're like, okay, we're ready now, and we just you know, populated the internet also with arguments. Not for argument's sake, but to bring out arguments. So yes, I think, um, I think to some extent, they are aware, maybe, that we're around, and so they won't make the, the same. In some instances, we've had partnerships with people, um, working with them um, so, so yes, that, that's true um, I think I answered it, right? Are we, are we taken serious? Do we want to? Um, yeah, until we're not needed anymore I think I want to be taken serious Until I'm not needed anymore On the question of um, diasporas uh, Je- um, Jennifer, right? Um, much of, I mean, one of the things that that's that's very difficult to to sort of ground what I'm saying in in a specifical specifically physical location is very hard because this stuff is happening online. Um, people's location matters and it doesn't matter, but it is true that the diaspora matters during these protest movements. Whether it's the DRC, uh, there's currently uh, protests against Kabila, want to extend to an, to an, another term that goes beyond the constitution. I mean. The Zimbabwean diaspora is contentious, you know, like there's Nahanda Radio inside Zimbabwe or outside Zimbabwe? I think it's outside. It's outside Zimbabwe, right? And, you know, so you've got something like Nahanda Radio. There's all kinds of things where diasporas play really crucial roles. And I was mentioning Sahara reporters. Those are 1990s uh, political activists who left Nigeria, ends up in the U.S., And when the internet explodes, are sort of like primed for it because he's got resources. He can apply for funding, you know. So yes, uh, diasporas also increasingly do irreverent things that may not look political or may not look significant, but actually are. I mean, we were talking about this the other night. There's a a great one that I often tell people to go watch, called Pranking My African Dad, which I think was shot in London by some kid in an apartment. And it's, it's a setup is the father comes home and the son pretends that he made a girl pregnant. And then the father <laughs> just say, I'm gonna send you back to Nigeria. And you know, it goes on and like, dad, no, I lied to you. And there's like, you know, the embrace. But what I thought was interesting about it was the, 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 the decor, the like the, the, the space, it was their house. They didn't, they didn't care that they weren't Afropolitans. <laughs> They're just another immigrant family. This is our family, this is our house. That wasn't even an issue. They were just showing you who they were. They were now existing. It's, that family was existing in London. Similarly, there's some. There's a young man called Clifford Owuzo. I don't know if you know him. And it depends on your sensibility. But he does something where he turns some act into music. So he has one called... Uh, uh, um, why don't Africans answer their their phone? I'm like, you know, go watch it. That's all I'm going to say. And he has another one saying, What if an African invented the iPhone um, uh, ringtone? Just go watch it. I mean, it's like, there's nothing. There's not necessarily something political about it, but I think there is. There is something about normalizing, just normalizing there, because there's all these. As, as we started out, right? There's all these terrible stereotypes that circulate. That's all about helpless people. Um, that that n- never thinks about nobody thinks about what kind of media is being produced in Southwest London. You know, it's, it's that what I think. What they doing? What they doing? When, because I, I w- I've been here like three days. Of course, I do what everybody else was. I don't want to say this on record. Hola, <laughs> you know, you can use hola to to watch British programming. But watching British television, if you see these shows about benefits and so on, they're always going to the house of some migrant. And so the image on like television is the migrant is trying to steal benefits or whatever. So this, what YouTube and that is doing, is kind of bypassing um, some of that. So just on the question of censorship, um, Mary, again, I, you know, it's, it's, it's about this, how this public sphere operates. It can operate online. It, it doesn't have to operate inside this, inside uh, these various countries. I mean, I, I think it's Nigeria, Kenya, I mean, all these countries have their own um uh, national public sphere, with their own online media, with their own sort of very debates that are that are that are impenetrable often to outsiders that we that most of us can't have access to. And yes, there are there are spaces where, for example, the internet gets shut shut down or sites get blocked. I think Ethiopia. There's a lot of debate about that happening. There's some of the, the the tactics of the Ethiopian government. Um, but I think there's a sense in which many of these African you know, African states that that are sort of, that has a tendency to censorship, I don't think they think of the internet, many of them are not really, they're thinking the internet is not really part of their agenda, they just, they they don't have to, not that they say, okay, there's not enough people online, it's just that they they don't care about those critiques. I mean, with the exception, I think, of Paul Kagame, as I was explaining earlier, where there's sort of of, an act of uh, talking back, most other African governments don't necessarily think about that, yeah.
0: Thanks,
3: Sean. Any more questions? Yes, a question here, and then a question there, and then later. Hello, my name is Haja. I work at Afford, the African Foundation for Development. My question is about languages and African languages. Uh, is there any plans to make a website as Africa is a country in any African language? Um, there's a question there. Yeah. I was going to answer. Hi, okay. um, thank you for your talk. My name is Tisochi. I wanted to ask two questions, but I haven't actually articulated the second question properly. But my first question was the um, the issue of access. Um, but before I ask, uh, ask my question, I, I I just felt like you were a bit dismissive of Linda Ikeji. I'm a I follow her blog as uh, I'm actually not.
1: I was talking about those people who are. I'm okay, not okay,
3: okay. I just wanted to get because I think she does equally yeah, good job I agree of, with you. of uh. telling, well, a Nigerian perspective of what's going on. My question is access, um, mm-hmm. because you just showed a map of uh, people who actually use Twitter on the continent, and um, I'm sure your, I mean, the messages being, um, mm-hmm. being, um, I mean, that you display on your blog. Thank you. The messages that you display on your book may not be accessible to people who actually need them. Um, because this may be, I'm just I'm assuming, the people who have phones, who have access to phones, who can afford to get credit or what do you call it, recharge cards, um, can only participate in this dialogue, whether it, is, whether, whether it be political or non-political. So what would you say about that and how do you include them in this um, participation in, in order to make them agents of... Uh, of
4: change, in my opinion. Thanks, let's take one more question uh, later. Yeah. Hi, Sean, um, my question is primarily on, because the social media space is seen very much as a, democrat, uh, a democratization, democratization, sort of, where everybody has a voice, to say whatever they feel. Uh, there's been instances where when people write certain things on Facebook, for example, and Twitter, I know of somebody, for example, who wrote something on Facebook, a letter to, and said, dear white people, blah, 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 blah. And then Facebook decided to shut that down. How, in your experience, have you seen, because there's a thin line between what you can say and what you cannot. How do you draw the line and what can be said and who should have the power to decide whether somebody should say something on social media or not and what the implications are, perhaps, for... <laughs> not me, not me. But Great I, 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 no, I won't Show. answer it yeah. Um...
1: Firstly on the question of language I, I know there's been efforts to So first I want to say what other people are doing <laughs> This gives me time to like Not get myself in trouble And give work to the people who work with me um, I, There's been attempts to I, I, I mean some mainstream um, new Global news 24 hour news channels um, have. have I, I've heard of one I won't say who Who had a project I think to have a, a Swahili channel Um that I think, <laughs> Paul's uh, smiling. I think if it <laughs> didn't work, why well, didn't it? Didn't uh, again because they're thinking about bottom line, so they didn't. They didn't um, work. Um, the others are, you know, there, there are some languages that are self-sustaining where you can actually have a, a public sphere online. That, you know, and heavily, I think, often uh, this kind of partly I think answers the answer of access, which is heavily populated, written about. You know, sourced by people living in the diaspora. So there are, there are, there are some um, web if you, uh, web-based private spheres that can exist like that. I think in that, in whether it's um, in the many Ethiopian languages, Oromo, or um, what's the main uh, the the, the, uh, the main yeah, Amhara. Amhara, yeah. In Amhara, Um no. Amharik, sorry, thank you. Am Harik in Amharik and Oromo this there's this uh, in Swahili I know that on the internet. But most of these most of these most most of this kind of publisher, I think there is a drive towards English. It is it is that that there's a certain kind of literacy that is assumed and these sites are in English. Even if in the Nigerian instance It might be in pidgin. You know, the the, the sort of, there is a move towards English. I think that's definitely, um, and of course, French. You know, if you're in West West Africa, um, in uh, in Angola, Mozambique, it will be in Portuguese. So unfortunately, when it comes to language, these languages that have been inherited, slavery and colonialism, um, dominate and gets replicated. Um, There's very, very, it's very rarely that you hear that there are sites just entirely, in Kosa or in Zulu, or you know, if I'm, I'm more familiar with South Africa, that that, that exists. So I, I'm not. This is a. Ter- this is kind of terrible to say this. I, I don't see it happening. I don't. I maybe I'm wrong about this. You know, on tw- actually on Twitter. I mean, if you saw that last tweet, I, I the the slide I put up of, of even Paul Kagame, Twitter is actually way more. Um, it's more useful for this for like people just tweeting in there in Shona in Nabele, in in venda or you know that, I think Twitter has been has been because Facebook of course you your your friends see what you're doing or, unless you're running a page but Twitter is a much more open medium and so on Twitter you'll see all kinds of different African languages being used but of course it's as I said earlier this is about kind of. Um, there's the, uh it's not necessarily to keep you out, but it's for people to sort of having like you know frank discussion in their or be more comfortable discussing um, in their own language, and the same goes for you know for access being a problem. You're right. I mean, it's again, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think. The, one of the points I'm trying to make is this two-tiered. I think, yes, there, th- there's two different things I'm talking about. One, as I'm saying, I'm talking about this kind of elite politics, politics about power, politics that involve, you know, the people who live in the West and the people who make political decisions. And that, is, those, th- that's going to be in French. It's going to be in English. It's going to be – well, it's mostly in English, actually, and then it's in French, and then it's – when it comes to Africa um, – and Arabic, and Arabic too But I think it. I, I, I'm going to be very It makes me sound terrible But I do think it's mostly in English It's that that other second public sphere When I said access, I to, I'm talking about Just people um, You know, you'll be surprised People, yes people Spend their money uh, uh, To do like callback You know, I'm the, my family in South Africa They're very working class And most of the time they, they use the cell phone to say call me back You know that thing where say call me and so on But they are increasingly watching videos On their, on their. they buy cheap uh, Smartphones aren't all exp- They're not all that expensive anymore You can buy, there's other smartphones Produced in, in other markets China's producing a lot of smartphones That people are having, again I'm not This is not rosy but I, I have seen, I have anecdotal Evidence that people are increasingly um, Using, how do people see These videos of um, of uh, TB Joshua, they don't have lap- they don't have laptops, they don't have desktops. It's primarily through their phones, and plans are increasingly being adapted for them to to to, to see and do these things. here. Yeah. I know you have a follow on, but the question of, of censorship, um, not a censorship, unlike what is appropriate. I mean, there is ways. I, there's one incident that I that I think was interesting. We had. Um, when Kim Kardashian broke the internet, um, somebody on a website, a feminist website, had written and a, a critique of like this whole idea, like you know, Kim Kardashian. Because some people had sort of shamed her, like is a mother, can a mother do that? So somebody had written a piece about about that, and then, but it also sort of
4: critiqued
1: Kim Kardashian's politics. We decided to post it on Africa as a country, and I think just because the word "but" was in the, in the title, Facebook. Um, there was a complaint against us, and our Africa's a Country page was shut down for a couple of hours, and we had to plead with Facebook to get it back. And all we said was, "Hey, we just we were just posting an article about, a, you know, a debate about that particular event." So, so I mean, I think I don't know if it's a bot or if it's an algorithm that works inside Facebook to declare something, um, uh, you know, to be offensive. One of the things that people do is you, you, if you have to say what somebody said, if they said an offensive term, you'll, you'll use a little asterisk, you know, as some of the letters um, of the word. I don't know. I've, I've never really had problems with saying some of the things. I, I don't know if you – and this is, I'm trying to make a plug. Go look at our Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> but we are quite controversial on Facebook and Twitter in the way that we engage very robustly, very, you know, biting. Um, I've never – you know, there's times when people, some people might think what we do might be offensive or, you know, across the the bounds. Of course, we're not racist, we're not sexist, but I'm talking about a sort of like humor, like being humorous and cutting about it. Um, with the exception of that one incident, um, because of a word that may have made them feel that we were, you know, we were being pornographic, um, that has really happened to us, yeah. But I'm not sure... Again, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's the... It's not my role to decide or, um, you know, censorship is a different issue. I I don't think it's it's, uh, my job to decide what's appropriate or not, yeah.
0: Right. Well, in media studies, I guess we have a lot of debates now on surveillance and censorship. Uh, we're beyond the kind of phase where you know we were celebrating the internet mm-hmm. and, and seeing it as technologies of freedom, but more and more we are increasingly skeptical about the world. Mm-hmm. So. Um,
1: no, I say that skepticism. There's a lot of good work on this, both just the sort of in this, uh, trade books. You know, Morozov. I know you people must have read him. Yeah. He's a sort of skeptic um, on that sort of initial. Uh, just optimism around the internet mm. that the internet would lead to these revolutions but when you look closely you find that actually no it's not the case um, it's often people in London that were tweeting about Iran or about um, Belarus and that had nothing to do with the protest there mm. you know with the effect or the direction of the protest so there were there was just a lot of uh, you know people jumping to conclusion not based on any evidence so I agree I share this when, I, when I'm speaking these things I think I want to make it clear that I'm not this evangelist or <laughs> um, for the internet I'm very aware of these you know class politics politics of access north and south I'm I'm totally aware of those things mm. yeah.
0: there are moments of freedom as <laughs> yeah. Johannes Fabian. yeah yeah there's a question there
5: Um, My name is Isabel, and I am uh, studying social psychology here in a master's, Um, just for the sake of full disclosure. I'm from Rwanda, and I wanted to talk about the comments about President Paul Kagame. I think it's very interesting... Um, As an African in the diaspora, I get very excited about platforms like Africa as a country, but I'm also very wary of false empowerment because I think there's talking for the sake of talking, and then there's actually the actions that accompany these words. And so I wanted to ask, how do you hold yourselves accountable to creating representations that aren't just circular? circular? I mean, just talking to hear yourself speak and to make people feel good about themselves and creating meaningful conversations that are going to generate True empowerment, which is, you know, access to information that is going to allow you to have a real agency, uh, for example, in my opinion, if, if I can continue, uh, President Paul Kagame gets criticized for not having enough freedom of speech, but if you ask Rwandans um, what is it that he provides, there's a lot of um, benefits that come with that. And I think that there's a false representation that because he follows maybe this evangelical pastor or he follows other Americans, his purpose when he's tweeting is not to engage with Rwandans, because he engages with Rwandans in different forms. We have something called Emiche and I'm sorry to have a history lesson here, but the the president goes around the country and literally listens to files and files of people, sorry, lines of people who come and denounce their local representatives and say this person has been put to the task for this and this, has had this budget, and has, you know, had zero result. So this is not a rant about how great Kagame is, but it's more of a question about these sound bites um, that can be very harmful to true change. So.
0: Great, thank you.
2: Are there any more questions? Yep, there's a question here, and then I'll take the question here at the front. Thank you. It's very interesting. I'm a postgrad here. My name is Xiaojin, and I'm from China. I've got a question about um, the real impact of the social media, uh, like the, uh, Africa is a country like its like blogs, on, on establishing the civil society in Africa. The question is based on my experience back in China. We have similar Twitter stuff back in China, Chinese version. Where people talk about sensitive issues, for example, homosexual, democracy, human rights. And of course, we have also some famous bloggers talk about these issues. But I was, and a lot of people question whether these things are functioning, are really impacting what we think about these issues. I mean, of course, they think these people, these bloggers, these social medias are being taken seriously. But the point is whether the topics are being taken seriously. I mean, for example, we, you just repost some, something online. That does that's not necessarily mm-hmm. mean you are involved in this. issue. So that's because we don't have that very fundamental stuff, which is civil society. So I presume it's the same case in, on the Af- African continent. So I would like to ask, to what extent do you think that the social media is functioning to mm-hmm. boosting a real social, uh, civil society in Africa. Thank you. Thank you. Great question. Um, my name's Silas. I'm, I'm an
3: A-level student so I'm not as, you know, expert <laughs> But... Um, Uh, it's quite interesting that you mentioned the video of um, my prank my African dad because um, and how it wasn't really non uh, really political at all because the boy that was in the video was actually last year the young mayor of my borough and so it's quite interesting Mm. but my question is um, all this kind of normalization of African culture and things like that do you think it can be a pointer to what is going on in Africa because I've seen on the internet a lot of um, the popularity of African culture with the different dances and different arts and things like that do you think it's possible that this can bring the focus to the corruption and to, for example the elections in my can it bring
1: a change mm-hmm.
0: thanks let's take these questions for now
1: I mean my friend from Rwanda um, I mean <laughs> if you if you had le- I mean as you heard me I was, I was constantly like kind of saying that I think you know and all the things you said I'd said which is yeah, there's there's this. It's a government strategy to not speak to Rwanda. It's it's explicit. I made a mistake.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to hold on <laughs> just for the mic? I, I apologize to the audience um, and to you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a mistake. Actually, what I meant is, in this particular tweet, this instance is not to reach out to Rwandans, but actually ministers engage with Rwandans on a regular basis on Twitter. Sorry.
1: No, fair enough. Well, I said there was a there was a government policy that all. Government ministers um, and senior civil service had had to have like a Twitter account. I mean, this is this is explicitly the the PR strategy of the Rwandan government. And as I also said, I think Paul Kagame represents. It's a complicated uh, politically. He's a complicated figure. There's there's as many detractors that Paul Kagame has. He has supporters. Those supporters are both in the West and they, and they in Africa. Afropolitans are also conflicted about him. Some of them. Because of the wired, because of the, the what you describe like social policy, you know like people are debating uh, there's the old debates about whether it's about democracy or whether it's it what I'm eating. all those debates come around polygamy. I mean, that's why I was trying to like so it's like this you know there's no this as I said it's contradictory, it's messy and I, and for me I think it's interesting to watch how it, how it, how it um, uh, plays out. Um, on the question of like with the relationship between the internet, civil society, or social movements, I think it's a really important question. I mean, like in in Kenya, for example, there is a there is a very well known um, sort of like there's a well known activist who does really sm- spectacular actions that are geared towards the media. Boniface Mwangi, I don't know if you've heard of him. These things are very well publicized, in which he often calls out. The corruption of um, uh, within the political system, the fees that MPs pay themselves, you know, et cetera, and so on. And he's hoping to create uh, attention and hopefully movement around it. But it, 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 thus far, I think it hasn't. It's been disappointing. It hasn't, it hasn't, um, cross over into into sort of political action. Well, those things have to. So, so, so. My point is just to make that. There, there is a relationship between this between this sort of online public sphere, and there has to be a relationship with actual social movements. We can't we can't pretend that, or actual civil society that things can just go online and therefore there's going to be political change. We have to confront like real political conditions. There can be very robust uh, opposition, if you want to call it that, Zimbabweans outside the country, you know writing endless stories about what they think is happening in the country. But inside the country, people might hold different views. You know, th- there's rich histories of political mobilization, people's attachment to political parties that we have to confront, that we have to confront. So it's, it's in some instances, some of these things have come together very nicely, if you want to think about social movements. In Senegal, with the, 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 when uh, President abdel tried to get an extra term, and you had this group called Yanamar, that was actually rooted in actual politics. They, were, they weren't necessarily always for elections, but for that particular election they identified themselves with a particular political candidate and you know linking themselves up to certain uh, social movements. The same goes with the recent protests in Burkina Faso, where you had a group um, they name translate to something like sweeping out, you know bringing reform. It was, it was rooted in actual politics and was actually it uh, comes out of uh, musicians, mostly rap artists and reggae artists that have been doing this kind of political mobilization, political education for a while. So they could provide like online, they could provide the space for that. So yes, it has to go along with like actually existing movements on the ground. And it has to, um, not everything that you're gonna see online is necessarily politically progressive or is representative of how maybe the people in that particular place feel. And yes, maybe my last comment on this is about, say the case of Binyavanga Wanana, I think what Binia Vanga did, um, and which I, was, I sort of just alluded to it, but, so what he did is he put the essay up, um, and we, I mean, this is a long story about how like, everybody's trying to find him, like what does that mean in the essay? <laughs> he's like nowhere to be found. And then he resurfaces the Monday, he's in Kenya. I think when he left, I think when he left, when he wrote it, he was not in Kenya, I think. And then what does he do? He goes on Kenyan television. He's like, you know what, I'm going to go on Kenyan TV, speak to Ken. You can Google it. Ken, these videos and you can see him like for an hour talking to two local anchors. Basically, I'm going to talk to local anchors. I'm also going to like... Be careful and think about how. there. There are, there are there. There's you know there's people who organize gay people who live and organize and operate whether it's in Harare, whether it's in Nairobi, whether it's in you know South Africa. Of course, they have laws that protect gay people. But I'm just saying they they are there. And so Binyavanga was was a, was very aware and smart and was like I have to talk both to these people, pre-existing organizations, but I also have to understand that you know Kenya has a particular culture of how people talk about sexuality, how people talk about sex, and I have to engage with that. I can't just come here with an agenda that I have information you know, that, I, that I brought from the side. So yes, I, I think there is a, in some instances I think there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a blind spot around both in the analysis but also in the practice about the relationship between online media and actually political, actually existing um, political movements. So for example, like, will the Arab Spring happen inside the Sahara? It's the wrong question to ask. You've got to ask, like, what is the actually existing things that are existing in Uganda? What what is existing in South Africa? You can't just like start another hashtag movement and think it's you know it's the same year. It won't happen. Um, um, but there are moments when they come together. Very interesting. On the question of normalizing. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated. I mean, popular, popular culture is, is uh, you know, that's sort of part of what I'm interested in. It's, it's been interesting to see, like, um, on their own terms, how African culture, Afri- well, particularly African artists, but also just African, you know, if you want to call it, like, music movements of coming, Azonto is, like, one of them where, you know, it is, like, this is it. Take it. Debanj is, a, is, a, is another one. Although I had, I had this feeling that he was going to be the first... Global pop star after African pop star after 9/11. Of course, it did not happen. But I think there is, yeah, there. I think the normalization is happening. I think there's a there's a way in which um, that. Of course, there's two. There's a two-tier process. There there are sites, and in the United, and I'm talking mostly here from the U.S., where it's obvious that if tastemaker sites, Pitchfork, you know, the Fader, and people know those kind of websites. Vice, vice's, uh, which is called Noisy, if they pick up on these things And it's Presented as sort of something from somewhere else or so you have a DJ, like a Diplo You know, these are people who are like, command lots Of money, and recycle music And so on, if they pick Up on it, and then people You know, follow it, or if there's something that just becomes Viral, the one of Um, I'm trying to think of one that I Just, like, uh, uh, uh what is it Called, um um what is the the video application where you can sh- make a video? Vimeo. Of... No no the sword one. Vine. Vine Vine is interesting. There was one where um where these young boys they are they're like after a soccer game, a football match, and they they imitate you know the Smoley, you know uh, what's his name? Um the the rapper from Brooklyn. Um who just went to he just got arrested for something, he does uh it's <laughs> uh, a terrible segue, I know.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> what?
1: Yes, yeah, him, right? So they're these kids, they talk about I just went to Africa, I got a goat. Have you seen that, right? I mean it's just like you when you the first time you see it, you are just like, What they saying I went to Africa, I got a goat. They're making that's just like not the right reference, right? But they're like they're dancing, right? And before you know it, you're like this is great. Like, the more people I send it to, um, they reacted. They was like, yeah, this is, this is where, you know, something just, it wasn't meant to be. Like, you didn't think it was going to achieve that. And they usually saw people saying, I went to Africa. I got a goat. People, I don't know if you've seen this dance. It's like, I mean, I can't dance. But anyway, it's like, I think that's what I think is interesting. I think it's not going to happen on, it's never going to be on your television. You know, particularly in Britain, it's not mm. going to be on your TV. It's not going to be on the BBC. Well, sorry, BBC, <laughs> it's, it's, it it's, it's, it's going to be on the web. It's, and, and, and increasingly, it's also um, Sky in America, um, you know, uh, Time Warner, well, the South Africans with their own sort of game that they're playing on the rest of the continent. And South Africa has a very weird relationship with the rest of the continent. If they see that there is monetary value, that there's a market, then they're going to get into this stuff. So, for example, there's, like, separate channels now for Nollywood. I think one is for Africa Magic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, like, there's a Hausa, Hausa one, there's a Yoruba one. I mean, this is what I think is... And I think Sky has some channels here in the UK, too, right? So, yes, there, if they... That, so normalization has to do, I think, with market. If, if the market sees the point of it, they're going to go for it. But I think it's increasingly just going to be like when kids using some available technology, Vine, you know, YouTube, Twitter. You but know, I think
0: his, his yeah. question also uh was about corruption isn't it about holding the state oh yeah let me get more, to more that broadly. the interesting
1: yeah. thing is like <laughs> that I think you you're so right that should be the next uh, that we should if there's a way in which that energy and that that way that people apply the technology this is it, it, it's good that you asked us that you should go <laughs> to that I think Olga at the top was what showed showed the potential of that kind of kind of politics. I also think there are artists who explicitly do this. One Love, you know, One Love the Kubelor from Ghana. Um, Mensa and One Love, these are two I don't want to say the group's name because it may sound like I'm swearing. But yeah, you know, people like that have done have done this through their music videos, through the kind of programming they do, the stuff they say on Twitter. One love wrote the other day, he wrote an essay actually for Africa's a country about Obroni, you know, um, when this is a kind of a, a phrase that people use for, for light-skinned people. So he was introduced, let's talk about race in Ghana, you know. So I think increasingly... It's going to come from, it will be artists, it will be, it will be these kind of people. But again, it goes back to the question of the relationship between social media and social movements. You can't just like post these things online. It has to be, There has, it has to come with some kind of political, you know, it has to be backed up by a political action. Mm-hmm. Occupy Nigeria was significant. It was interesting. But in the end, apart from the unions, there was no actual political organization. They thought it could just run on momentum only So when the unions were negotiating with the government Over a sort of amended subsidy I mean it was still a subsidy But it wasn't the same subsidy, right? So Many people in occupied Nigeria were, were disappointed Well that's politics Like you need movements The Arab Spring is the same Like in Egypt You had all these like, internet people That were being praised here And profiled But there was no actual political organization with it and so the, the political, the people who had an actual political organization was the Muslim Brotherhood. And they were primed and ready to take power. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'm aware that there's still a few more questions, um, but we are running out of time, so I think we'll unfortunately have to to close this session, but I think Sean, I'm pretty sure Sean will be back online in the next 10 (laughs) minutes, so I would strongly encourage you to ask your questions via Twitter, and I'm sure he will respond. I was
1: just going to quickly say I won't be, because I have to buy like a local, this is another thing about how these things work, I have to buy a local plan, unless there's Wi-Fi, anyway.
0: (laughs) Well, from today, I believe LSE has started offering uh, Wi-Fi to visitors. Um, But anyway, thank you so much for uh, for coming to this event and for your great questions.
5: Thank you.